Nighttime on Still Waters. This is NB506812, narrow casting into the night from somewhere on Britain's waterways. Twenty third of July, Saturday. Martins twist and flit around the large ash, clustering in the branches like cockney parakeets. En masse, they drop, forking down to the water surface, swimming the air with dolphin like grace. We slip the mooring ropes and leave. Welcome to a hot summer night, still a little sticky from the day's heat. This is the narrowboat Erica, tucked into a bankside deeply carpeted with clover, narrow casting into the darkness, canal side. The sun, milky but hot, has long since dropped below the horizon, and the air is thick and still. Not even the young willow that bends over us moves. And the canal is mirror calm, broken only by the few rings made by a surfacing fish. Let's enjoy the cool of the night together. It's so good to see you. Welcome aboard. These are the long days of summer. The slow, quiet routines of high summer play out across the day. Gone are the frantic and boisterous activity and noise of late winter and spring. It would be temptingly easy to suggest that a lethargy has descended alongside the dust of summer heat. But that would be misleading. The flow is just different. More understated, less noticeable. From time to time, coveys of ducks push out from the bankside undergrowth into the centre water, dipping their beaks to drink. Pinhead jewels of water decorating their sleek heads. Mothers, sometimes accompanied by fathers, escort their juveniles. By now, there's usually down to one or two survivors. It's the early mornings and the evenings that they are the most active and visible. The moorhens strut on long legs, beaked-faced and wide-eyed, among the tall rushes and the Irish jungles that flame with loosestrife and foam with meadowsweet. They are nimble and edgy, always eyeing me with distrust. Get too close, and they'll bristle with outrage and tear screeching annoyance across the water, part running, part swimming, part flying. But mostly, they prefer to stay hidden in their green, watery, vegetative, castled worlds. The swans appear and disappear, serenely gliding the days. They carry with them a sense of importance, as if they are aware that their presence is a bit of an event. Ducks and moorhens generally move out of the way. People stop what they're doing, often offering a word of greeting and they sweep past, 
heads held high on their elegant serpentine necks, turning their heads gracefully to the left and then to the right. And I've noticed that the two adults often do this in synchronism. It adds to the feel that this is a performance, theatre, a polished routine immaculately executed. The two youngsters have taken to the habit of scooting along with one foot, the other tucked up behind them on their back. It gives them a rather appealing childlike appearance, reminiscent of children enjoying scooting on their scooters. They do remarkably well in keeping a straight line. Their fluffy grey heads, covered in more down than feathers, lack the water-repellent quality of adult outer plumage. Consequently, they constantly sport this scruffy, unkempt, pull-through-the-hedge-backwards appearance. On Monday, I was working outside, and the cob, the male, wandered over with his familiar hunchbacked stoop. Eyeing me, he shook, and then lay down in the longish grass beside my feet. For a while he contentedly grazed the grass, tugging at it like a cow. Every now and then I was aware of a beady eye checking on my movements. And after a while, he tucked his beak into his wing and fell asleep. His beautiful, glistening black current of an eye lost in a drift of tiny snow-white feathers. For these are the days of quiet routine. Summer and everything with it has gotten into their strides, found their natural pace and rhythm. It's certainly not the case that nothing happens, although you might be forgiven for thinking so. Just now, as I began to think about what I can tell you about all the lives that live alongside us, I was stumped for a while. Things are pretty much as they were last week, and the week before, and the week before that. The cygnets are growing, as are the few ducklings. The fish are bulking out. But even so, these are almost imperceptible incremental things. But that's good. Just over seventy years ago, Miles Hadfield, in his An English Almanac, wrote, During the dog days, the hot days from July the 3rd to August the 11th, few birds sing. True high summer has been reached, and we may pause and survey the scene. All the gay spring colours have gone. Woods and fields are in their deepest and richest greens. We see the England of our classic painters, a landscape of still and calm, under massive umbrageous trees. Hedgerows are full of larger flowers. Hills and moorlands begin to glow with colour. And that appears to be the point of this time of year. The short racing sprints of spring have now given way to the marathons of summer. This is the long game. The time of growing and flourishing after the birthing, the strengthening and the healing after the challenges of pairing, bonding and raising of the young. It can take it out of you, this living thing. 
We need to know our natural pace and set our lives accordingly. And we do well to take note of our non-human cousins. And it's also time for renewal. The ducks and the swans are molting and some are in eclipse. And by the water's edge, piles of swan feathers lie. If you like swan feathers, now's a good time to collect them. The molt and eclipse are the times when last year's main feathers are shed and replaced with new plumage. And when the flight feathers are lost, until the new ones can grow back, the birds are grounded, unable to fly. This is their eclipse. It makes them very vulnerable to predators, and so they will often present themselves less often in the open, hiding away. And their behaviour being subdued, less boisterous. It's particularly noticeable with the chippy mallard ducks. When we had hens, the times they went into molt could be heartbreaking. They looked so miserable, their feathers bedraggled and lacking any sheen. And they would stand, hunched in the shadows, looking utterly crestfallen. But the ducks and the swans don't seem to be quite so affected in this way. But it's hard to tell. Non-domestic lives tend to adopt behaviours that serve to mask any signs that a potential predator might perceive as weakness, and therefore mark them as an easy target. But whatever the case, these days of the eclipse and molt signal this time of summer as a time of renewal as well as growth. And in the trees and hedgerows, it's marked by lammas growth, that flush of new foliage that splashes fresh limes and mint greens on the rich canvas of olives and moss and forest and racing greens. These are the days that allow us to breathe. It's always really lovely to hear from you. And thank you to everybody who's been contacting me. Thank you to Wee John on Instagram. Thank you that this feel that this is the best podcast. And hello to Archie Piplo. Is it Piplo or Peplo from Seattle? He said hello on Facebook. And hello again to Tony Bell over in Ireland and to Margaret for contacting me. And thank you for all your words and your comments. And uh, I really appreciate them because they really get me thinking. And hello also to Madeline Smith. And it's great to hear from you again. And thank you for your very kind comment about the One Unremarkable Dusk episode. And hello to some new listeners. Thank you to Julianne Royer and her mum, Lydia Beachy Royer who are over in Ohio and who heard Nighttime on Still Waters from David Wickle. Now, he's the ham radio operator who sent the voicemail last week and I mentioned him. And so thank you so much. And thank you to both of you for publicizing and promoting the podcast. It's greatly appreciated. It's something that, as long-term listeners will know, I hate doing. So I really do appreciate when you put the word out. Thank you.
the heat again is beginning to build. After a couple of days of respite, it roils across the fields, thick and dusty. The sky turns from cobalt blue to heavy chalk, as if it were a giant press, squeezing out every last drop of heat and pushing it into the earth. The fields here have been cut, leaving them parched and filmed with dust. Earlier, I watched a solitary rook, standing alone amid a desert of bleach-browned grass. He was staring intently at the earth. He was probably hunting beetles and worms, but for all the world, he looked like a hunched professor, misplaced, cast adrift in a world that does not know his name. He didn't move for the entire time he was in my sight. The midday and the early afternoon air shimmers and mirages, bending and warping the trees and hedgerows of the middle and far distance into Dali-esque fantasies. And where we are tied up right now, the fox-thin line of gravelled towpath, baked hard and gritty, is, for the most part, lined with thick oases of vegetation on bankside and landside. They thrum and sparkle with life. Butterflies and moths and dragon and damselflies and bees and flies dazzle the air. And deeper, in their green heart, particularly on the offside bank, coots and moorhens, voles and water rats and harvest mice, feed and shelter from the glare. If ever we need proof of the importance of green corridors, protected from cutting, it's now. Places where the verges have been cut have turned to hard earth and scorched grass. The grass will almost certainly grow back, but the lives who depended on it in these dog days of summer might not be so lucky or resilient. And unlike a river, the canal doesn't feel cool and inviting. It just lies, still, skimmed with pollen and dust. It has the static look of coloured resin of a model scene, as sullen and as sulky, as thick and oily as it does in winter when the temperatures hover just below zero. And still the heat rises. And even though the sun is now westering, the outside thermometer reads 46 degrees centigrade. That's 118 degrees in old money. It's not really that. The sensor is reading the heat bouncing off the cabin roof, but it's still pretty hot and set to get much hotter over the next few days. Earlier, Donna scorched her foot when she accidentally stood with bare feet on a metal bulkhead and all week my phone has been pinging with increasingly strident warnings of extreme heat. Initially, they were playful summer scorchers on their way, and then the Met Office began sending out advisory yellow alerts. Midweek, this was replaced with an amber alert, and I can't remember, or at least in this locality, of an amber extreme heat warning ever being issued before. And on Friday... This was upgraded to an unprecedented red alert that warned of, in their words, a very likely risk to life. 
temperatures in the high 30s and possibly even breaking into the 40s, that's 100 degrees Fahrenheit, are being forecast for Monday and Tuesday. The definition of what constitutes a heat wave is rather complex and seems to border into the dark arts. The official definition is when a location records a period of at least three consecutive days with daily maximum temperatures meeting or exceeding the heat wave temperature threshold. But that threshold varies in the United Kingdom by each county. So for around here, that means three days of 27 degrees or above. That's about 80 degrees Fahrenheit. Further south and in the cities, it's 28 degrees. That's 82.4 degrees Fahrenheit. But hot spells and heat waves at this time of the year are fairly common. And if you're a long-term listener, you might be aware of my fascination with Buchan's cold spells and Miles Hadfield's, whom we met earlier, obsession with them. Well, here we have an instance to call on not one of Buchan's cold spells, but one of his hot spells. The Roman belief that the heat of the dog days, 3rd of July to the 11th of August, was because the dog-star Sirius rose and set with the sun, was rather more in accord with events, if not with this cause. For statistics, and Buchan in particular, show that the 12th to the 15th of July, inclusive, are likely to be extremely hot. They form the first of Buchan's so-called hot spells. And on one of them, the 15th in 1881, our hottest day occurred. The temperature rose to just over 100 degrees Fahrenheit. And he ends the section with, The average temperature for the month of July is upward of 60 degrees. That's about 15.5 degrees centigrade. The figure we are all taught to believe is perfect. But the 1881 record looks set to be broken this week. And it's interesting how this is being played out in the press and social media. There's certainly a feeling of anticipatory disquiet. I don't think it's just among boaters either who take heat very seriously. It seems to be more widely felt. But tonight, Tonight the night once more wraps itself around us, and the still waters stretch out before us like a shining mirrored path made of quicksilver. It looks solid enough to walk on, curving gently to the right into a copse of trees midnight black. And all along the bankside, tufts of meadowsweet glow pale and ghostly. The jewelled vetch has been eclipsed by the dark. So let me leave you with the sounds of gathering dust that I recorded a little earlier on, on this dog day of summer. Just before I recorded, a woodpecker screeched along the hedges on the opposite bank, alighting in a scraggly oak tree. 
and the air is filled with humming insects, drawn to the honey-scented meadow-sweet, and the teasels and the rusting sorrels. Jackdaws and pigeons and collared doves join the even song of the dusk chorus. And the sheep, who have had a hot day of it, call to each other in the welcome call. From the narrowboat, Erica, I bid you a very good, peaceful and cool night. Good night. Temperature outside, 14.8 degrees. Inside, 24 degrees. Humidity. 32% Dew point 8 degrees Wind direction West Northwest Wind strength 3 miles per hour Barometric pressure 1024.7 Rising Cloud cover 76% Cloud ceiling 33,400 feet Precipitation Nil Moon phase 86% Waning gibbous Day length 16 hours 16 minutes Sunset 2121 Skycasting 506